You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening. Welcome to Plato's Cave. This is 3RRR, 102.7 FM. I am one of your hosts. My name is Thomas Cordell. I'm joined by Josh Nelson, and it's absolutely glorious to have Alexandra Helen Nicholas back in the studio with us tonight. Good evening. Hi, it's nice to be back, guys. I missed you. Oh, we missed you too. Aww. And I believe that Tony Abbott is still our Prime Minister, or that, that may change by the end of the night. So we'll uh, <laughs> we'll take responsibility. We, we, we <laughs> you know what did occur to me, though? It doesn't really matter which of these guys, or guys, which of these guys get in. Regardless, they're going to hate the subject matter of the films that we're discussing tonight. <laughs> Amen. A that, woman, I should say. That's Yeah, th- I guess that's our theme. Films that the Liberal Party and its current guys, regardless of which of these wankers is in charge, they're all going to despise these films because of form, content and subject matter. That is something to celebrate. Watching films that are a subversive at rightnow.com. Awesome. Let's get into it. We're going to begin moving way off the beaten track in Los Angeles to immerse ourselves in the subculture of trans women's sex work. Workers in the independent American film Tangerine. We're then going to move to maybe somewhere in England, maybe during the 1970s, to explore the dynamics of a sadomasochistic relationship between two moth enthusiasts in the Duke of Burgundy. And finally, look, we've been referring to Mario Bava's uh, 1960 Italian horror classic Black Sunday a number of times in previous shows this year, so as it's recently been re-released on Home Entertainment, we thought we'll take an in-depth look at it tonight. That will be coming up towards the end of the show, but for now, let's start off with Tangerine. Well, like you said, Tangerine is set in Los Angeles on Christmas Eve. This, for me at least, is one of those... um one of those films I think that's destined to become one of those cult anti-Christmas classics. Sort of, um, it's kind of the new Die Hard, which I have to confess is the most misrepresentative tagline you can possibly imagine for this film. This is not a line that's going to get picked up by the DVD distributor of Tangerine, the new Die Hard. It's not going to happen. <laughs> for me, it's the it's my new Christmas movie. I love it. it you guys are looking at me very, very blankly. I'm just going to... No, I, was, I was about to say, that describing it as the new Die Hard is clutching at straws. So I was trying to work that into a joke about Abbott, but please, please continue. Thin. It's thin. Um, so the plot. Let's do that. Let's start there. Katana, Kiki Rodriguez and Maya Taylor play Cindy and Alexandra, two trans sex workers who get caught up in a series of increasingly confrontational adventures as they contend with a cheating boyfriend and stingy Johns. Now, their stories link in with uh, that of an Armenian taxi driver called Razmik, one of the girl's major investors, and he has his own issues on the home front, particularly in the shape of a suspicious, hyper-traditional mother-in-law. Now, there's no turgid social commentary here. This is a pretty sassy, light-hearted romp. Um, I found this film super refreshing because it just lets its characters be. They just sort of... I had a a sense of actual genuine relief not having yet another film about more white cis characters uh, kind of performing plot. You know, there's just a sense of being and, and in this film of just kind of existing that I just really loved. It, it really appealed to me. The drama's not epic or complex, but the director, Sean Baker, I think, just gives them space and a voice to just kind of do their own thing. And, and I just I just thought it was kind of magical. I mean, this, I guess this film is a, a kind of balance of drama and comedy. Um, it's the first time, I think this is worth flagging, it's the first time I've heard Chris Brown used as a verb. As in, uh, you didn't need to Chris Brown the bitch. That was a first for me. (laughs) 
there's also a flip side, I guess. That's a good example of it's very dark humour at it times, I think. It is pretty dark, yeah. 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 And I, I did have that little sort of grammar moment. It's like, oh, I've never heard Chris Brown as a verb. <laughs> there you go, we're learning. There's a flip side to all of this, which is the more technical uh, side, I guess, of Tangerine and what's going on. It's shot on iPhone and put together with pretty accessible software programs, things like Final Shot Pro and an $8 app called Filmic Pro, and it looks amazing. I mean, this film just looks beautiful. It's just drenched in this um, kind of beautiful, highly saturated colour. It just really brings to life the kind of manic hyperactivity of the characters themselves. So there's a kind of double whammy going on here, I guess, because aside from its refreshing content it's also a massive kick in the pants if you are one of these people that's always complaining about you know new films really shit it's like this film is kind of there's no excuse not to make your own you know these guys did it on an iphone so so stop moaning and start making i i for this perspective alone i I find this a really hard film to hate yeah i adored this film it felt really radical there's sort of an energy and a rush behind this film that reminded me of sort of some you know early underground film styles i think there's something very truly subversive going on with subject matter it's really frank unapologetic way of representing the subject matter and the way it was made um it took me a while to make this connection but um gregor rucky i think he's if he was around today i suspect this is the kind of film he would make. It's a really good call. Because when Very. he was at the height of yeah, the new queer movement, he was making films with queer characters that were unapologetically in your face. He didn't want to make nice, accessible films about... Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing a whole bunch of stuff he, he has said over time, but you know, he saw in the 80s there was a lot of sort of very accessible, feel-good films about gay men as a community, and and he he won. He was very resistant to that kind of fixed sexual identity. He wanted to make it more fluid, and he wanted to say. You know, our characters don't always have to be the good guys and do nice things. They can be really rough around the edges. And my God, the characters in this are really rough around the edges. There's no disguising the fact that they come from a certain background and lifestyle that that's pretty it's pretty rough and confronting at times like the characters do do things that really have a shock of reality of oh that's right that is this is their world they're, they're not just comedic larger than life characters here for my entertainment they are living these lives um and, and look just some further background information that's fascinating is that the two lead characters are they're also friends in real life so that i think that sort of speaks to a lot of why they've got such beautiful chemistry on screen, but they also know the area. I mean, I, I don't believe they're part of the scene quite that explicitly, but one of them works as a trans advocate, one of them has a performance background. Um, they know this scene, and a lot of the extras, a lot of the people who appear in bit parts were kind of roped in on the fly. I think the director said that the, there's a donut shop that's quite central to the action in the film, and I think that's his local donut. That's where he got the idea, is that he wanted to make a film around his local donut shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's gorgeous. Yeah. Like the pizza shop in Do the right thing <laughs> yeah look it, it's kind of got that vibe too it doesn't really it? does that yeah. sort of Gregorakis do the right thing <laughs> and this is oh <laughs> I think we're all having a moment that, that could be a tagline doesn't it <laughs> and just that kind of Shakespearean storytelling of all these different stories and characters and it just comes to this final scene at the end where it just explodes yeah I really enjoyed this film it felt it felt like I was seeing something new something I hadn't seen before and that was exciting I came in here ready to dig the boot in and um, your love is sort of washing over me and I'm getting a little bit one over by this film again um look i think some of the the points you raised are completely valid and i think this film is is interesting for a number of reasons one is the energy there's there's an abrasive energy to this film from the very beginning which took me a little while to get used to and probably 
to be honest, put me offside for a while. But I, I kind of like the economy. There's no flab in here. There's no endless exposition. There's no pointless exposition. It's go, go, go from, from, from the start to the end. I think the performers and the characterizations are really interesting. And I love the way it, it portrays Los Angeles. It portrays the city in a way that I haven't seen for a long time, and particularly on the back of, and as a contrast to Straight Outta Compton, which we talked about last week, which we're dealing in similar terrain here, and the contrast between the two versions or visions of the city are so polarising in some ways. I found this, and I think the, the, the golden hue of, of this depiction sort of ties in with that. But the issue I had was was in terms of representation, and I feel kind of torn even acknowledging that. I mean, the last thing the world needs is another straight white male critic laying the boot into a film about trans women of colour, you know. But the director's cis male, the director's white and male. So I think it, this is a film that's ripe for investigation in terms of representation. And if I'm being really honest, I found the violence against cis women in this film really uncomfortable. And uncomfortable in, at moments where it was obviously supposed to be uncomfortable, and I think you nailed it. Thomas, when you talked about this is a this is a film with characters who are on the edge and they're not clear cut and they're not necessarily the the nice guys, but I found like it was playing it for laughs as well, and that's what I found more uncomfortable at times. And there's one thing I know this is really picky. There's an act of of violence slash humiliation that occurs at the very end of the film, and I felt it didn't need to be there, and I felt it was really voyeuristic in the way it was done, and I felt like it was probably there only not to reinforce the prejudice against trans individuals in the film, which I thought was pretty much established, but more just to kind of as a a prompt or a catalyst for a, a beautifully tender moment that happens at the end of the film. And I felt you could have had that moment without the humiliation of those characters that precipitated it. And that... That, that I really struggled with. I look, yeah, I, I hear you, and they're their points. I can totally see worth raising. Um, my only rebuttal is I was fine with all that <laughs> stuff, really. Yeah. But but I hear you, and I, I think because the film is so edgy, that's how how it works. There is an uncomfortable humour to it, and and yeah, it is made by a cis white male um, film director, but he's got a background of wanting to explore the depiction of marginalised people, being very careful to introduce us to character before we find out too much about circumstance, so we don't form judgment and he works so closely with these two lead uh, women who also play the two actors so he he took their cues as to what was appropriate and to create this world yeah i didn't want to suggest that like i really reject that essentialist notion that only women can make pro-women films and men only make misogynist films and, and you know beyond that in terms of identity politics but I thought well if it's if it's directed by a white male director then maybe I can have my two senses so well. it's worth it's worth asking yeah. can I just can I just pause and say not everybody may understand the terminology of cisgendered do we want to very very quickly explain what we mean when we talk oh I tried on the breakfasts and fumbled but it's look it's terminology that is relatively new I think it's only going to it's only been around for about a decade or so and it's it is to provide um, look instead of saying there is all of us and then the trans people or trans people and non-trans people. It, it, it's a way of saying those of us who are born with the same gender that matches our sex, we are called cis. Okay, so, so it's spelled C-I-S. C-I-S, and it is pronounced cis. I, I did look it up. Um, the act of naming is to take away the kind of assumed normalising implications. That's what I was trying that. to say. Beautiful. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, yeah it, it does have kind of... Uh, it is a pretty new word, um, but I think in... Certainly, I mean, I don't know how you would talk about a film like this and not use it. Um, yeah, well, the, the, the danger would be to use language like the other people or yeah, the, or the, 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 the other normal ring. people got yeah, no, somebody no, says something stupid like that. But, yeah, it, it, it's, it's to define... Something 
something other than trans is cis. And in terms of written, it's also worth pointing out, and obviously this doesn't get conveyed via radio, but trans with an asterisk, because there is no singular category of trans. Trans is a, a quite a broad... Yeah. A, a, well, you know, linguistically, it's an attempt to encompass quite a broad range of identities. So I guess, the, you know, linguistically, with the asterisk, when we've been referring to trans, that's what we mean. I think this is all really important because it opens up this idea of... Um you know, these are obviously just the act of criticism has a strong strong degree of subjectivity to it. There was, I haven't read it, but a few people um, I've seen post online, there is a, uh, a review online of Tangerine by a uh, black trans woman. Yeah, I read that. What was that like? Because I saw, I think I've bookmarked it and I wanted to come back to that. What was, can you paraphrase that for me? Because that's, that's an, ex, that's a, an in, you know, that's a perspective that I would not share with this film. I, I don't know. Yeah, look, I don't know what that would be. Her perspective was very political, and in, in some ways it was an essentialising idea that these types of films and stories are our stories. They, they're not the domain of a white male director. So I kind of reject those aspects of her argument. But she did have a problem, and I think the key argument that she came back to, which, which seemed to echo my issues, was why is um, moments of tenderness between members of the trans community only, only occur through acts of violence and trauma? And trauma, yeah. So I thought that was an interesting mm. argument in light of the film, and definitely, I mean, that, that's a reasonable point. Yeah, Absolutely. but it's worth pointing out that my I'm definitely in the minority in terms of not being completely on board with this film. I think the, the I think general response to this film has been overwhelmingly a, positive. It's a pretty yeah. good example that it's not. I mean, I, I've talked about this a lot, but I, I find it really redundant, both critically and just as somebody who really enjoys film, to try to take these really staunch positions on yes it's progressive no you know it's really yeah. reactionary it's like a, a film can sometimes it can be contradictory completely um you can find you can really enjoy a film and have it not be completely progressive and perhaps this is one of those films that maybe it's not perfect i found it really refreshing in a whole bunch of ways but it doesn't mean that i give it a free pass necessarily on it on the issues that i perhaps haven't really understood because of my own subjective I think in general, that's a really important point. Yeah. We seem to be in a really weird phase of criticism at the moment where everything is love or hate, you know. Here's a really weird example. Dustin Hoffman said something recently about how all modern cinema is no good, something silly like that. And people responded by saying, who the hell is he? Worst actor ever. The Graduate was a shit film. And I thought... <laughs> I, it was, such, it was such an over-the-top <laughs> response. To, you, you, you know what? You can disagree with an element and be happy with the rest of it. Yeah, let, let, let's keep talking through these complexities. Look, that's why... That's the fun part. That's why those of us on Plato's Cave do <laughs> what we do. <laughs> we have been talking about Tangerine. Uh, it's a small film. It's just currently being shown at Cinema Nova. Three, triple, ah. Oh. The Duke of Burgundy, which we're gonna we're gonna delve into that right now. This is um look, you just heard of the song, these breathy female vocals over this sort of folksy film score. It, it's shot with period details that evoke somewhere in Europe in the seventies. Lots of soft focus cinematography and lighting. The, the whole credit sequence at the start where that song is used, there are pink tinted freeze frames during those open credits. These are all stylistic details of the Duke of Burgundy that evoke both European art house films and soft porn films from the 
60s and the 1970s. This, this sort of lovingly recreating previous cinematic styles without too overtly referencing specific films seems to be the specialty of English writer-director Peter Strickland. Now, I haven't seen his first film, but his second film, Barbarian Sound Studio, did this with the 70s Italian giallo horror films. Um, and, and just like Barbarian Sound Studio was effectively a very atmospheric and creepy horror film without violence or gore, uh, The Duke of Burgundy is basically... Well, not basically, there's more to it, but in many regards, it's an erotic film without nudity and actually not all that much sex. Um, it's about a sadomasochistic relationship between two women who are both into lepidopterology. <laughs> well done. I, I, I went a bit mad from another place in between peaks there, the way I said that. This is the, Garmin <laughs> this is, this is the scientific study of butterflies and moths. And in fact, the, the title, the Duke of Burgundy, refers to um, a type of uh, European butterfly. So it's about the relationship between these two women. And look, there's a teacher-student dynamic. There's a mistress-maid dynamic. There's an age difference. There's a difference in sexual drive. I don't want to tell you too much about what happens in this film because one of the most delightful surprises happens within the first 15 minutes. And this film explores the dynamics of this sadomasochistic relationship. There's a lot of sensitivity in there, a lot of humour. And look, there is quite a bit of sensuality as well. Lots of nylon, satin and lace. Um... Uh, 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 remind me, that there's a really good 2007 TV documentary series called Indie Sex, and one of the things this looked at in the history of cinematic representations of sex is how things like sadomasochism is often represented in cinema as the butt of jokes or something dark and violent. And, and at, at the time of that documentary, a lot of people were quoting Secretary as, say, for example, a rare film that they felt portrayed their community authentically. I think they'll be a fan of this film as well. Um, some curious stylistic devices that are happening here. Um, very, there are a lot of scenes at a university where they, they listen to lectures and there's lots of um, mannequins seated among the extras. This is quite an overt statement about artificiality. Um, I'm still questioning why. I'm sure we'll talk about this in the studio. I mean, I know to a degree it's a reference to low-budget films of the era that did use similar techniques, but I wondered, is this a way of avoiding being too committed to the ideas. This is slightly punch-pulling by being so self-referential. We have an all-female cast, uh, which is interesting also, but is that to avoid the complications of a power dynamic by having a male and female sadomasochistic relationship? I did enjoy this film, especially for maybe 30 or 40 minutes. Increasingly, and because of the look of the film as well, um, it felt like a very atmospheric and attractive instructional video about sadomasochism and... um, and the Sado S and M. It felt like, yeah. For me, this film, as much as I enjoyed it, and I was sort of lost in its, its dreamlike state, it, it did feel increasingly yeah, instructional as it continued, and I lost ever so slightly a little bit of patience with this, despite some some really amazing moments um, that sort of come out of nowhere just to mesmerise, like a, a, a I don't know a montage of sight and sound of moths going crazy, which um, I, I really well the character imagining that anyway uh yeah so what am i saying i love this film it's gorgeous it's beautiful but it lost me a little bit about halfway through i i I felt it was a little bit too clean cut i i adore this film this is one of my films i think this is one of the best films released in australian cinemas this year you beat Um, me to it i was gonna say that and we're really we're really really i mean cerise our 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 absent platonic spelunker cerise was the one who um, (laughs) she put me onto this film i know that she's a huge fan of it also so i wanted to give cerise a shout out but 
this film played at uh, MIF, it played at the Sydney Film Festival, it played at the Queensland Film Festival, um, and we're really lucky. Melbourne's the only place I think that it's getting a cinema release, and the the, pl- the pleasure of seeing this on a big screen is just. I mean, it's just going to be one of it's. It's one of the most special things that you can do for yourself if you love film this year. I'm going to pick up. I, as you can tell, I'm getting a bit of a nosebleed just talking about this movie. I love Strickland's films, but I love this one most of all of them. Um, I'm getting a bit of a nosebleed, a bit excited here. So I'm going to pick up that idea of him referencing stuff, and I really like this about his. You know, he, he references very heavily um, in, in his films, particularly Berberian Sound Studio and Duke of Burgundy, but in a very different way from somebody like Quentin Tarantino. Um, it's very much a kind of stylistic, thematic palette for, for Strickland rather than explicit references, although there are explicit references in here um, that are there if you are aware of them. I mean, absolutely the art film stuff. So I think um, Stan Brakhage's Mothlight is a really obvious film to, to mention. There's a beautiful homage to Mothlight in this film. And, of course, the big one I think that has been mentioned in reviews a lot is Bergman's Persona is another huge influence on this film. But it's the 70s um, porno chic or uh, art porn kind of films by people like Jess Franco, Valerian Borovchik, uh, Jean Roland, Honorary European Smut Lord, uh, uh, Radley Metzger, who's a, actually American, but he may as well be a European. Um, I mean, these these guys are really... that. This is a love letter to those guys um, in a big way. And films like Emmanuel and The Story of O, very much in love with that idea. And in interviews, Strickland's talked about he wanted to take the kind of setup of those movies take away the kind of erotic component of it in a way, although this is a deeply erotic film, in a very, like you said, almost prudish kind of way, ironically, um, and just kind of unpack the human drama behind it. It's a really interesting idea. Strickland started off being invited to do a remake of Jess Franco's Lorna the Exorcist. That was the uh, that was how this project started. And he decided that he he didn't want to do a remake as such, but Franco's a huge influence on this film. If you know he's he's a Spanish filmmaker. Um, he did Vampirus Lesbos, hundreds and hundreds of films. He's a beautiful filmmaker. But if you're aware of the, if you don't know this stuff, this is still a wonderful film. But if you do know this stuff, there are little hidden treasures all the way through it. There's an uh, a Franco regular called Monica Swin. Uh, plays a cranky elderly next door neighbour in this film and she like I nearly cried when I saw Monica Swin in this movie and again it's not that Tarantino overt eye wink it's something very very different going on here I'm starting to ramble. This film is pretty much, yes, it's an S&M film. It's about S&M and the kind of power dynamics behind that. It's the anti Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, it's not kind of dealing in that kind of world at all. And as you said, Tom, it's like if you're interested in the Bechdel test, if that's something that that matters to you, I'm not sure if I can think of another film that um, quite passes as strongly as... Duke of Burgundy. I'm starting to hyperventilate. Actually, I, I, Josh, I, I, I can see why Cerise loves it now because yeah. she got me onto Jess Franco. It's a big, yeah, there's a, a big lot fan. of love yep. for Franco mm-hmm. in this film. See, I've just been taking notes because all those references are lost on me and I thought this film was extraordinary. This is... That's what I love. It doesn't exclude you. If, if it's not my favourite film of the year, it's, it's very close. Um, but the thing that drew me, and I guess apart from the, how gorgeous it is, how incredible the chemistry between the two lead actors, the way in which the film develops, was its representation of masochism. Because I've yet to see a depiction on screen, I'm sure there exists, but I haven't seen them, that deals with female mas- masochism in its varying incarnations. 
in such a, a complex and sophisticated manner because the film begins with that master slave dynamic you know the the S&M the you know we've got the dominant with the dominant one and we've got the passive one but then the film expands this idea of masochism or, or gives us a revelation which suggests that what we're seeing is far more in line with what we'd call reflexive sadomasochism, where the person who occupies the passive position is in some ways potentially controlling the fantasy scenario, which is something that typically on screen and something that I've written on and something that I've been fascinated with, with male characters. And you often see this in action cinema. I think I've mentioned this on, on some, one of the podcast shows, you know, that those scenarios often in things like Stallone and Schwarzenegger films where the male action hero is torn up and, you know, is tortured and he, he appears to be the passive position, but it's almost a way of him proving his masculinity. So in, in some ways he's both the dominant and the submissive one wrapped up in one scenario. And I think this film has that sophistication, but also in terms of repetition. Repetition is so crucial in, in this film in terms of exploring masochism because it's about the waning of the fantasy and the way in which the fantasy has to sort of intensify at the same time that it's, it's running its course and it's revealing itself to be a fantasy and the moment a fantasy reveals itself as that, it needs to be reinvented. And I, I thought there was such a complexity with the way in which this film kept managing that as a sort of a structure but the the narrative itself kept me in this film as well and one sequence which i haven't been able to get out of my head is that tracking shot into female towards female genitalia which I think that's in the trailer really it's beautiful which leads to an incredible sort of fantasy dream sequence and then ends with the camera sort of retreating again i, I thought this film was yeah it was bliss i don't know what i missed <laughs> i've had it really literal i i know that sounds ridiculous in many ways because it is such a dreamlike mesmerizing film and and I found myself just being so aware of how I was being instructed at points about this is the dynamics of this relationship. I, I kept on imagining that voice from a 70s science program saying, in this sequence we can see that one lover is asking the other to do dirty talk, but the other one is reluctant, and yet does love her, so wants to attempt to fulfil her needs, but is uncomfortable in the role that she is being placed in. Um, and I think the, the acting... Con- oh, that sounded really flippant. I apologise <laughs> for, for doing that to this film. But um, And I think I found the acting a little bit mannered and still as well, which kind of heightened oh, I think artificiality. That was very, I think that was very deliberate. I found it too self-aware, though, yeah. the artificiality. I just thought, commit to the idea. Don't put the mannequins in there. Don't be so mannered. I didn't even notice the mannequins. How's that? Oh, really? Yeah, not it's, really. Very, it's very Franco. Very, very Franco. Franco loves his mannequins. There, there are these tracking yeah. shots over the women in the classroom, and there's just mannequins dotted in around oh, the house. They're all women. Just like, real women. There you go. I literally wow. did not pick that up at all. You're such a pig, what Josh. Was the, what was the wrestling <laughs> film? I've just had a complete mental failure. What was the wrestling film with Channing Tatum and Steve Carell at the start of this year that got released. I'm doing a horrible blog too. You loved it as well. Yeah, I know. Um, the Fox Fox Catcher. Catcher. The single fox got caught, but yeah, it still yeah. called the Fox Catcher. Yeah, that for me is neck and neck with this as my favourite two favourite films of the year, even though I just forgot its title. And the thing, you, the comment you just <laughs> mentioned was interesting because it's the same criticism a lot of people had of Fox Catcher, it which was actually, yeah. it's really it's too literal. There's no subtlety. And for me, it was it, it, everything is underneath the surface. We see the surface, but we have to kind of interpret everything that's kind of rumbling underneath of it. So clearly I have a style that appeals to me, but both those films are similar in that in that regard. What's interesting to me is that talking about the structure, I think that Duke of Burgundy is structured in a very similar way in a couple of senses to uh, Barbarian Sound Studio, and I adore Barbarian Sound Studio. I think it's a brilliant film. But a lot of people I know feel that it kind of fell away in that last third. Um, for me, the, the, the last third was its strength. Um, and I know people with Duke of Burgundy who really felt as it kind of became a bit more abstract, a bit more abstracted in that last third, that they found themselves sort of losing that thread. 
Um, I, I think that that's where these films excel. I think that's where Strickland's real superpower is, is this complete surrender to subjectivity um, and the, the formal space that gives that gives him to experiment um, I find just really captivating just in terms of pure eye candy, just sound and vision and the experience of watching film. Um, I don't think the, the Brackage reference in this film is hard to miss if you if you know Mothlight um, and I don't think Brackage is a, is a throwaway reference in a way I think he's just had a huge an influence on this film and that kind of school of experimental or avant-garde filmmaking as somebody like Jess Franco or um, Valerian Borovich. We've been talking about The Duke of Burgundy, also getting uh, a small release at Cinema Nova, but that's available for you to go and see right now. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. We are now going to take a look at our final film tonight. We're going to delve into the classics with Black Sunday, Josh. Indeed, Black Sunday, a.k.a. Las Maqueras del Demonio, a.k.a. The Mask of Satan, a.k.a. Revenge of the Vampire. Yes, this is Italian horror. This is Mario Bava. This is 1960. This is his solo directorial feature debut, I believe. I'm sure you'll go into this, Alex, maybe. Um, He'd worked on films before as a co-director. So here we have where it all began. And it's worth pointing out, in case you missed it, we talked about... Barber's 1970 film, Hatchet for the Honeymoon, way back in May. So you can grab that on the podcast. Okay, so Black Sunday begins with a pretty extraordinary scene. It's 1630, it's Moldovia. A woman, played by Barbara Steele, by the name of Asa, her character, she's strung up, she's about to be executed, she's been charged with crimes of witchcraft, she's promptly branded and then has a spiked mask hammered into her face. The spikes are on the inside of the mask. It is an incredibly gruesome scene, shocking in its ferocity and in the fact that this is our introduction into this narrative, which then leaps forward two centuries and into, I guess you could say, more familiar horror, 60s horror terrain. We have two doctors who stumble onto the crypt containing Asa and inadvertently brings Asa back to life and then she starts hunting her descendants in order to reclaim her sense of, of life. She's, well, in some ways it is more complicated than it sounds because this is a film that doesn't, it's not really easily classifiable as a vampire film because while she's referred to as a vampire, she's also referred to as a witch who is also a Satan worshipper. It's one of the curiosities in this film that it blurs the boundaries for reasons that aren't just in the scripting but also, I believe, in the production that the, the fangs looked ridiculous so Barbara says that's it, no more fangs you know, and, and the editor cut around them. Look, it's fair to say I'm a, I'm a convert, a recent convert to Bava, and I love this film. I've managed to catch about three or four of his other films, thanks to Alex. Um, since we covered Hatchet for the Honeymoon, there's uh, something about this film and the way in which it's filmed in exquisite black and white. The cinematography is extraordinary. But one of the things that instantly reminded me about Black Sunday was it took me back to those 1930s universal horror films, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, and the way they captured such a, a strong atmosphere of setting and location. You felt like you were in these crypts, you were in these chapels, you were in those sort of haunted woods. And I was trying to work out what it is of Barber's filmmaking that creates such a distinct sense of setting and location. And I actually stumbled upon a, a book Again, I think you may have put me onto this, Alex. Tim Lucas's Mario Bava, All the Colours of the Dark. And he talks about the way in which Bava 
provides a, a sense that there is a fourth wall, that there is objects either behind the, the camera that create shadows or an implied sense of windows or curtains to give the audience the impression that they're boxed in, that they're not sitting inside a set. And it's one of these the aspects that makes him such a, um, a, an incredibly atmospheric filmmaker because you feel like you are in these settings and locations with these extraordinary actors and you know, stories. I'm going to flag another book. The Tim Lucas book is brilliant. There's another book uh, by Martin Contero called Black Sunday. It's, a, it's specifically about this film. It's from Auteur Books. And I mention this because I'm being sneaky here. They're also publishing my book on Dario Argento's Suspiria. Can I do that? Yep. I've just got thumbs Done. up. Very sneaky, very sly. Look, Martin's book on Black Sunday is absolutely essential um, if you've got an interest, not just in this particular film, but I think in, in Italian horror or even just gothic horror. I think that this is really a classic of gothic horror um, it's, I mean, for me, it's up there with Dracula's Daughter, the universal film. Um, you mentioned some of the others, but Dracula's Daughter, and that it really has this central, strong female character wrestling with identity. I mean, it's that, it's that good, it's that important. This beautiful movie, it's all names, it's all, all names for me. Loosely, I didn't know this until uh, reading Martin's book or just reading about this film recently. The, um, it's based very loosely on Nikolai Gogol's 1865 horror story Vi which I didn't know, very, 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 very loosely, apparently. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's been a huge influence on people like Coppola and Tim Burton. Um, Andre Dr. Gorbeck, um, I didn't know this, but he was up for James Bond at one point, the handsome young doctor. He, right. The job was given to George Lazenby oh, George. instead. But I love the idea of a Black Sunday James Bond mashup that, that sort of appeals to my perverse sense of... <laughs> of awesomeness but i mean look this is barbara Steele. this is where the barbara Steele loving yeah. is going to begin <laughs> um she plays two characters in this film she was 23 years old when she made this movie she owns it she didn't speak a word of italian and somehow this is the the recipe for complete success um i mean this is really one of the most powerful images of defiant overtly overtly evil proud and emphatically sexual femininity i think horror film is has seen it's so iconic and so so beautiful she went on after this to do some really other major horror classics things like corman's pit and the pendulum with vincent price um which i I adore the horrible dr hitchcock with uh by ricardo freda freda was um he was a sort of he worked he was a big italian horror director sort of before barva and barva worked with him a lot so he was a big influence on Bava um, and also Antonio Magaretti's The Long Hair of Death in 1964 she also I guess for the mainstream if you're not really into Italian horror things like Cronenberg's Shivers in 1975 Joe Dante's Piranha 1978 and of course non-horror films uh, she's in uh, Volker Schlendorf's Young Tallest in 1966 which is an amazing film about school bullying and I guess the really famous one is Fellini's Eight and a Half where she has a very small cameo but a very important one I think I think it's one of the great cameo appearances um in you know in that kind of era of filmmaking look recently we saw the passing of christopher lee and we talked about that a bit on the show and i think i said then you know barbara's the last one left of that era she's really the 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 last remaining 
person that we have left from that particular world and we she's still making films she doesn't do them often but we really need to if you're not onto her now this is your call this is it come on i mean she did a beautiful film a couple of years ago called the butterfly room with uh heather langenkamp who is nancy from nightmare on elm street and ray wise who's laura palmer's dad of course um butterfly room's beautiful and i'm one of its few defenders but ryan gosling's directorial debut uh, Lost River last year. She's that, in yeah. that and she's incredible in that film. I mean, this is it. This is your call to arms to get onto Barbara Steele if you're not in. Get in now because she's not going to last forever. And this is where it all began really, isn't it? This, I mean, is, this is it. This is the breakthrough role. This was the moment. And you can understand it, even though I, I think I read somewhere that in the dubbed versions that we got, we don't actually hear her voice. So she sells it just on that look and her eyes. I mean, I think even Barbara said he cast her for her eyes. And the way in which she plays that those two characters, like the vampiress and the kind of the innocent who needs to be sort of rescued but is also quite strong in her, in her own right, she, yeah, she's so striking in this film. And, you know, the, the aspects of Italian horror here, that the, the play with sexuality, I mean, there's some, some compositions in, in this film where you have, like, the, the young man, the Gorbeck character. It's also interesting, actually, there's another tangent, that it's the young guy who's the strong one normally when you have the two doctors it's like the older van helsing who's the one that's the younger guy who gets seduced here it plays with that and it reverses that but where he's sort of reaching out to the katia character and you know his hand is sort of uh, superimposed over her breasts and then you have the cross you know it's a beautiful shot in close-up frame it's you know it's amazing and the other thing is the uh the use of visual effects here again hammer horror were doing some interesting stuff around the same time but there's some extraordinary visual effects work in this film particularly in terms of eyes work and, and the way in which the resurrected body of Asa comes back. Um, and also a special effect involving ageing. Normally you get those oh, yeah. lap dissolves where they draw in wrinkles and then they'll dissolve and then they'll increase them or something. You don't get any dissolves here. He used a, a two-colour light system, a green light, red light, where the lines were there, they, were, you couldn't see, they weren't visible for one type of lighting, and then he would just shift the lighting from gr- red to green, I believe, which would reveal all the lines that were on her face. And it's, it's incredible because there was a moment when I was looking at it, I have no idea how they've done this. This is remarkable. And because it's black and white stock, he got away with it. You know, it's... I understand why he's such an important figure now. Yeah, it's so... I mean, it's such an exciting film to watch for so many different reasons. I think that fundamentally... Bava understood, even though you know she was she was twenty three and she was perhaps not the easiest person to work with. He understood fundamentally how electric she was on screen, and he knew precisely how to work that to the best of his advantage. I mean, there is a, a kind of eroticism that just radiates from her skin. It's just, I mean, I can't think of anybody, certainly in horror, that really equals that. Um, it's it's just there's something about her flesh, and these are always films about flesh. Um, the flesh that is alluring and also repulsive at the same time and, and, and still for me just embodies that contradiction and, and she's fascinating and you just can't take her eyes your eyes off her. She's oh, Speaking oh. of flesh, yeah, go, and watch, <laughs> go and watch Shivers again. I want to watch Shivers again just to see Barbara Steele. Yeah. <laughs> We were talking about Black Sunday. That is available on home entertainment through Shock Entertainment. Also tonight on Plato's Cave, we looked at Tangerine. That's currently screening exclusively at Cinema Nova through Rialto Distribution. We also looked at The Duke of Burgundy, which is also screening exclusively at Cinema Nova through Madman Entertainment. Um, Tony Abbott is still our Prime Minister. Probably won't be by this time next week. Oh, it do- doesn't make a difference. They're all dicks. Um, <laughs> they, they would all hate these films. They would all hate these films so yeah tonight we dedicate uh plato's cave to films that the coalition would despise good night until next week 
You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.